You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. If you are new here, uh, I want to welcome you. My name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if we've not met, I hope I do get to meet you even today after the service, but I want to thank you for being here and for worshiping with us today. And we have a, uh, we're in the middle of a series, actually. We're a little bit past the halfway point. We'll finish this up the first week of July, looks like. Um, so we'll go into the summer a little bit. But we're in a, a series from the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, this is a most interesting book. It's an unusual book in the New Testament. Uh, it, it, many Many places you can read, I mean the Old Testament, many places you can read through and it doesn't use, at times, religious language. Um, so it's a little bit different. It addresses real life issues that I think we all can relate to. And also, it is a book that is, well, it's at times challenging to track with. It can be discouraging at points. He kind of speaks in a way that appears hopeless at some points and then circles around and you say, oh, no, no, there's tremendous hope around the corner. We see that. Uh, so it's been, a, it's been an encouraging study. Thank you for those of you who've been around as we've gone through it. Today I want to talk about limited wisdom, <clears throat> which is what we all have, and an, our unlimited God. Limited wisdom, but an unlimited God. Arguably, the greatest college basketball coach of all time is John Wooden. Uh, no disrespect to Coach K, some might say him, but I think it's John Wooden, uh, John Wooden uh, coached UCLA, and they won 10 national championships in 12 years. So even if you're not a sports fan, uh, you can hear those numbers and go, I think they won seven in a row, something like that. But 10 out of 12 years, they were the best college basketball team in the nation. So that's unprecedented. Uh, John Wooden was known primarily not as a motivator or something like that. He was known as a teacher. As a matter of fact, John Wooden got his beginning teaching English uh, in high school, and that translated into coaching at the high school, uh, basketball, and then ultimately moving up because of his success to coach at the college level. So he was by far and away a, a teacher, and he's written books since his uh, you know, retirement. He's not living anymore, but he's written books about uh, his concepts and this sort of stuff. And so John Wooden... Uh, this great teacher, talked about the eight laws of learning. The eight laws of learning that really help any teacher and any student to consider. And he said, these are the eight laws of learning. There's, first of all, explanation to explain the concept. Then there is demonstration. You have to show how it works. Uh, and then there is imitation. The student needs to do what they've been shown and imitate what they've learned. Then there is repetition. And then repetition, 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 repetition. The eight laws of learning. Now, even his illustration there is teaching, isn't it? It tells us that the way we learn things is through repetition. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, well, he's mastered that because Ecclesiastes takes a few key themes and he weaves those themes throughout the book of Ecclesiastes and essentially says the same thing over and over with a little bit of a different angle, which is challenging, uh, can be very challenging to a preacher who wants to have something 
creative to say each week, and you go, well, we just said the same thing last week. And this is particularly true today, because chapter 8 repeats all the themes of chapter 7 with just a little bit different look. And so when I got to it this week, I mean, obviously I'd read the whole book, but when I got to this week, I go, oh, ah, I used all my best stories last week. This is saying the same thing. So sometimes you got to spread them out a little bit. But uh, anyway, saying the same thing. So I'm going to review a little bit of what we said last week because I think this will help us <clears throat> understand the chapter this week. Last week we looked at wisdom literature overall. So the book of Ecclesiastes, the genre is it's not a letter um, like the New Testament letters. It's not a book of history like the Old Testament books of history. It's not a book of poetry. Uh, well, there is some poetry in it, but it's not primarily a poetic book like Psalms might be or something like that. It's wisdom literature. So Proverbs is wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. Job is uh, Song of Songs as well. And in these books, uh, they kind of function the same way, especially Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Now, Ecclesiastes has a lot of proverbial sayings in it, a proverb being like a short, pithy statement of wisdom. So there's a lot of that in this book. And what we saw last week was that these kinds of pithy statements, these kinds of proverbs, describe God's general way of interacting with us. They're observations, uh, pure observations inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they're observations of life that show how life generally works in God's ordered creation. They are not, however, promises. The book of Proverbs is not a book of promises where you pick it out and it's a guarantee that that will happen in every circumstance. For, for instance, if you read the Proverbs, this becomes really obvious unless you sort of buy into prosperity theology and you just sort of say it and that's what I get because that's what it says. But if you understand that it's a, it's a general observation, it makes the books a lot more um, a lot easier to understand. So, for instance, Proverbs 10 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Very simple statement, which is saying that laziness, generally speaking, leads to poverty, and diligence, generally speaking, leads to um, increasing wealth. Now, is that statement always true in every circumstance? Well, absolutely not. We all know people that work very diligently but never get out of poverty because perhaps they have limited abilities or they have limited opportunities, or perhaps they were born in a part of the world that lives under chronic famine. And so everyone lives subsistently, hand to mouth, day to day. Work each day is about survival. So you certainly wouldn't say that person who lives in the famine-stricken land is not diligent, of course, that person's diligent, but they're diligent to survive. So this is an observation of how life generally works in many conditions. But God does make exceptions. God acts sovereignty, so, sovereignly. So you'll notice that it talks in wisdom literature a lot about fearing the Lord, which is to say the Lord rules and reigns and does ultimately what he chooses to do. And God makes exceptions to the general way that life goes at times. That's the whole book of Job. Job, generally speaking, if you live a righteous life, it goes well with you. If you live a wicked life, it brings on some kind of difficulty or suffering. That's generally how life works. But Job was the most righteous man in the world and then suffered worse, arguably worse than anyone. And so the whole point of the book is to say you can't just take a proverb, a general saying about God, and so, so you know, so uh, make it have to apply in every situation without exception. Job would be 
the exception. We see how that works. So the ways of God, um, you know, God tells us how he generally works, but God is sovereign, and it doesn't mean that if you do the right thing, you're guaranteed that you'll live a long age, to a long age. That is not always the case. We saw last week that Ecclesiastes was wrestling with this. Why is it that a good, faithful, righteous person who loves God sometimes dies young, and a wicked person that is harming other people gets life, 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 lives longer and longer, and uses all that extra time to only hurt other people? Why does that happen? Well, because God in his sovereignty uh, sometimes uh, acts in ways that are mysterious to us. And the reality is that God's ways Always, we're going to see this at the end of the message, God's ways always play out in eternity. So there may be some exceptions in the here and now, but for eternity, you, you do reap what you sow. God will sort everything out in the end. So how do we apply this wisdom literature? Well, we need to seek to know God's wisdom uh, in these Proverbs, in this particular kind of literature, the wisdom literature, and we need to understand how God works, and we need to submit ultimately to his prerogative to be God and to act sovereignly as he chooses. In other words, fear the Lord. That God rules and reigns. He is good. It doesn't mean fear like he's going to harm us every moment or something like this, but respect, live in awe, live in reverence for the holy God, and we submit ourselves to him because sometimes life doesn't make sense. And we don't conclude that when it doesn't make sense that necessarily there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with God. Well, there's something wrong with me, but it doesn't mean that everything bad that happens in my life is a direct contra- uh, you know, directly connected to something bad in me or God's failure to do what he said. That's not what it is. It is that God works at times in mysterious ways. So here's a summary statement for how to read wisdom literature and in particular the passage today. Get wisdom. That's what Proverbs 4 says. A father says to his son, get wisdom. Whatever it costs you, get wisdom. So get the wisdom of Scripture. Labor over it. Read. Trust God. Apply it. Get wisdom. Use wisdom and live wisely. But don't put ultimate trust in wisdom. Put ultimate trust in the Lord. In other words, worship the Lord. Don't worship wisdom. Fear the Lord. Because we, as we said last week, we have to remember God is not a vending machine where we put in our coins, our obedience, our faith, our whatever it is, and out comes what we want, blessings. Uh, we serve the Lord because he is deserving and he is holy and he is righteous and we love him and we leave the results to him knowing that it will all be sorted out in eternity. So that's kind of the background of what we talked about last week, and we're going to see that in this week's passage as well. So the first point for today is to use wisdom. I used to tell my kids that all the time. Actually, they're grown, and I still do sometimes, but whenever they would go out at night or go do something with their friends or whatever, I would always say, use wisdom. You know, seek to act wisely. Um, Don't be foolish. And so here's uh, the first five verses is really about use wisdom. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, God's wise word. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. There's probably a statement that how God generally works right there. 
um, that if you keep a command, you will know no evil thing generally. But there can be exceptions, correct? So we use wisdom. He starts off by giving us this these statements about wisdom. He starts by asking a couple of rhetorical questions that sort of lead us to think there's probably not a lot of wise people walking around who know how to figure a thing out. Who is like the wise? It's a rhetorical question. The assumed answer is, well, either no one or not many. Who knows the interpretation of a thing? Well, not too many people really know how to interpret things. But he says a man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. So those who are wise, he makes this very curious statement that it'll show up on your face. That doesn't mean at the end of the service you can identify every wise person in the room by a face scan or, okay, but it's saying generally this is how it works. Wisdom shows up on someone's face. Now, why is that? Because throughout the book, he has said that the wise person is the person that fears the Lord, and the person who fears the Lord is the one who says, I can't explain everything, uh, Ecclesiastes himself. I've searched for all the answers. I don't have the, all the answers to what God does. But I do know this, fear the Lord. He is sovereign. He is good. And then he says, go enjoy your life. Eat, drink, enjoy your work, enjoy your life, knowing that God rules and he is good. So the person who lives that way is going to have, what does he call here, a, uh, a, a sh- makes his face shine. It's probably the picture of someone who radiates joy in their life. The person who says, I'm trusting God, I'm not carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders, that shows up in your face. The same way is the hardened face, the face of the person who does not trust God, but trusts in himself or herself. Well, necessarily, the person who's self-sufficient and self-trusting will have a face that has a look as well. It's the furrowed face of Worry, anxiety, burden, fear. So he's saying to trust the Lord ultimately, fear the Lord's beginning of wisdom. The person who's wise, not many, but it does show up in one's face by living a life that is characterized, not every moment, but characterized by a peace and a joy. He's regularly saying, enjoy life in this book. Trusting God takes the pressure off and it shows up on our faces. Now, Verses 2 through 5, <clears throat> what he said there was he's giving some really solid street-level wisdom about how to respond to authority. Did you see this? I say, verse 2, keep the king's commands. Be not hasty to go from his presence. So he's talking about someone who has a meeting with the king or works for the king or encounters the king. In the ancient Near East, <clears throat> the king had complete power. And so for you to go before the king, if he's... Uh, temperamental, you mean you're taking your life into your hands to stand before the king. Because the king cannot like what you say, and he can just say, off with, off with her head, off with his head. He's not obligated to have a uh, due process. He's not obligated to have a jury of your peers. He just makes the decisions. He's sovereign, small s, over the kingdom. So he says, look, keep the king's command. In other words, be wise. Realize who you're talking to. He says, you know, don't leave his presence quickly, verse 3. This would be like a sign of disrespect. You know, you're before the king, you move slowly, you speak respectfully when you're spoken to. When it's over, you give your gratitude, you walk out somewhat methodically. You're not just like out of here, like he's a drive through meeting with the king. Show some respect is what he's saying. He says, don't take a stand, verse 3 as well. Don't take a stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever pleases. 
This could be don't side with those who are siding against the king in an evil cause. Don't get a couple of hot-headed rebels and get together with them and say, hey, you know, why don't, why don't the handful of us uh, attempt a, a coup? That's just not wise. Don't, don't, don't join evil forces, especially against the king. And certainly, don't show disrespect by challenging him. Verse 4, um, who may say to him, what are you doing? I mean, this is utter foolishness. Say, king, I demand an explanation. What, are you do- what were you thinking? No, you don't talk to an authority, especially an ancient Near Eastern king like that. And he, he goes on to tell us why. He says, first of all, keep the king's, well, he says, be, I'm sorry, verse 3, be not hasty from his presence um, to take a stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever pleases. So first of all, realize that it's not going to go well for you if you don't treat him respectfully. He can do whatever he wants. But there's a second underlining reason. It's a God-centered reason. He says, verse 2, keep the king's command because God's oath to him. So God is, has a commitment to him because God put him in place. He's saying the king, even an ancient Near Eastern wicked king, is, is, rules with a delegated authority given to him by God. God ordains earthly authority. So relate to the king out of obedience and honor him because of God's oath to him. He, he's He's fulfilling designated authority from God. So he's saying when you address the king, beware of the king over the king, the king behind the king. Your response to that king reflects your response to the king over him. So this is really a statement about you want to be wise, show respect appropriately to authority. Now, we're going through this book in Ecclesiastes. The reason I chose this um, and the elders, we obviously talked about this together. It wasn't just my choice, but as we talked about it together, we, we said, let's go through Ecclesiastes because this year we're focusing on the next generation and to help, to, to help the next generation to know God, to be equipped to serve God. And this is a book that really equips middle school, high school, college, young adults because this shows you how life works and how to live life and come to the conclusion ultimately to live your life in the fear of the Lord. And we all need that, but you especially need that as a younger person. And this point here is especially true, that understand how God's word world works, that God has delegated authority and that we're responsible to honor that authority. And as we do so, we honor God. And this is not just an Old Testament concept. Paul says this in Romans 13. Look at Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. That is a truth and a reality of how the universe, how God the Creator designed the universe to, to act and to respond. And so he says to Christians in this passage, Romans, you know, be subject to the authorities. They are from God. Don't resist them. Um, if you resist them, you'll incur judgment. Well, were these good and godly authorities? No, it was Nero, Caesar Nero, who was wicked and evil and opposed to the church. And yet, Paul says, respond to him. So it's not just righteous uh, leaders, but all. This applies to authority in all realms of our life, verses 1 through 5. It really does. If you're a young person, it means honoring your father 
and mother. That's who God has delegated authority to in your life or your teachers or coaches. But it's true for all of us. We all have a supervisor at work or we're accountable to a board or we are, you know, we're accountable to uh, civil authorities. We're accountable to respond to law enforcement. We're accountable uh, in the church. God provides leaders called elders. So wherever we are, God has ordained leadership in every sphere of life, and we want to respond to them appropriately. Now, is this an unconditional obedience that Paul talks about in Romans or that, um, that uh, Ecclesiastes talks about when he says, keep the king's command? Do you always have to keep the king's command? Well, there are rare situations <clears throat> when we don't, and that would be, it's not an unconditional obedience, but that would be when, a, when an authority requires you to do something that God forbids, requires you to sin, then uh, Acts 5 teaches that we are to say, no, respectfully, I must obey God and not man. Or when an authority forbids you to do something that God commands or commands you to do something God forbids. Either way, if, if an authority forbids you to do something that God requires of you, then the same thing, you obey God and not man. But the truth is, especially in our world and in our culture, that is a rare occurrence. Maybe it's becoming a little bit more common. Uh, that may be true. But we need to be careful on this one. And we need to be careful and make sure it's actually something of conscience where someone is requiring us to sin or forbidding us to do what we think is right. Oftentimes, people experience a lot of grief in their life. Please hear me, young people. People experience a lot of grief in their life because they're foolish in the way they relate to God by the way they relate to the authorities he has ordained. And oftentimes, believers get this persecution complex. It's, it's big in our culture right now, where any time an authority is telling them to do something, it, it may not be telling them to sin, but telling them to do something, they, uh, they say, well, hey, I'm being singled out as a believer. And they wave the persecution flag. And oftentimes, it's not a persecution flag. You are just playing a fool. You are just acting foolish and resisting authority. Like one of those people that has shirt, question authority. That's your default. You're just going to always question the authority. Well, generally speaking, it's not going to go well with you. And, and the truth is that that is a rejection of God. We should be looking to honor. The default for the Christian is honor authority. And I pray it never gets to this, but if it does, I will have to respectfully defy authority, respectfully, um, if they require me to do something wrong. But oftentimes, it's just because we don't have the right attitude. And, and Ecclesiastes say, use some wisdom. This is just some wisdom here. Don't be a knucklehead, is what he's saying. It's very clear. Don't, don't challenge authority. Like, what do you think you're doing? That's not the appropriate posture. There may be a time to bring questions to authority and to appropriately challenge authorities. There's a place for that. But we do it respectfully. We do it with honor. We do it with wisdom, knowing that generally speaking, not only does that please God, but things work out much better for us. So use wisdom. Number two is use wisdom and fear the Lord. I almost said, but fear the Lord. I don't want to make them contrasts, but fearing the Lord is the high priority because wisdom has its limitations, and we see that in verses 6 through 17. Verse 6, for there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? 
No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the child of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with the fear, those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people for whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people for whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil to the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night does, do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, however much he may toil in seeking. He will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know he cannot find it out. So those last verses there, he really shows the limitation of wisdom. Man, I searched it all, and I cannot find out what God is doing. So use wisdom. <clears throat> For sure, he starts out at the beginning. When you go before the king, use wisdom. Realize that wisdom has its limits. You're not going to be able to find out all the ways of God. Now, when we were reading through that passage, if you were looking and saying, I don't see how each of those verses connect, I, welcome to my week. I, this is, I read this passage this week. Not, it's not a, a sympathy appeal. Well, it probably actually is to some degree, but uh, I, 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 it's hard to see how these all relate together. Um, the big ideas are clear, I think, but when you get into the weeds a little bit, sometimes it's difficult to see. Like he's, it seems like he's listing various things, and the flow doesn't always make complete sense, at least not to me. So what I'm going to do is my best. And I'm going to explain what I, I think how this all connects together. And I think it all connects under what we saw at the end of the passage there, which has to do with, um, you know, which has to do with we can't ultimately find out everything uh, that God does. He is sovereign and, and, you know, he acts at times in mysterious ways to us. Wisdom doesn't explain everything. So let's start in verse 6. Rob, can you track with me as we go through this? In verse 6, we're going to go through each of these verses. I'll try to make comments as I can. I know verse 6 shows up in the middle of a paragraph. <clears throat> but it says, for there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. So Back in chapter 3, he said, hey, if you want to be wise and living life, realize there's different seasons. There's a time to live, a time to die, a time to build up, a time to dare down. He's repeating that. There's a time for everything, and the times are in God's hands, he says uh, in chapter 3. So there's a time for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. So even whatever season God has ordained for you, there are always, a, there are always various weights that we carry. And so what is that trouble <clears throat> that lies heavy on us? It's interesting. He tells us in the next verse, 
that, uh, um, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, look at verse 7, for, why does man's trouble lie heavy on him? Because he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? So wisdom's a beautiful thing. God tells us how to live. God tells us everything we need to live a life for his glory, a fruitful life. But even realizing there's different seasons, there's still a burden that we carry. And you know what that burden is? You don't know what's happening next. That's what he says. The difficulty, no matter how much wisdom you have, the difficulty is you don't know what will be. Who can tell you what will be? The things that we prayed for this morning, that you who acknowledged you're in a battle, we can pray for God's wisdom, we can pray for God's power, we can pray for God's deliverance. What no one in the room can do is tell you what's going to happen tomorrow, whether that problem will be totally gone or whether it will intensify. And so this is the burden we sort of live under that we don't know and we are limited. And so this is why we must trust God with our health, with our job, with our marriages, with our children, with our relationships, with our ministry, with whatever we're doing. We can't see the future and don't have ultimate control. And so the passage here is talking about our limitations. You don't know the future. You're not omniscient. The next thing he says is you're not omnipotent. You don't have all power. Verse 8, no man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given. So The other thing he says is here, you're limited. You can't even control your day of death. You can't retain the spirit. What does that mean? You can't keep yourself from dying. So there's a time when your body will die. If you're a believer, your spirit will immediately go into the presence of Christ. But you can't stop that. You can't say, I'm going to keep my spirit in. I don't know where it goes out, but I'm going to keep my spirit. I'm not going to die. You can't do that. You can't control the day of your death, he's saying. So realize your limitations. Use wisdom. But, but don't walk with a swagger. Live humbly before God, fearing the Lord, knowing that you don't even know what's going to come in five minutes, and you don't know the day of your death, though God does, and you can't stop it. He says, also mentions war. You know, a soldier can't be, there's no discharge from war. I think war is a picture of vulnerability as well. If you're in a war, you can't control what's going to happen to you. It's unknown. I don't care how great your strategy is or your general's strategy. It doesn't matter what plan you have and how many forces you have. The war will go according to God's will ultimately. And you're not guaranteed life. You don't know. And so there is this sense of we can't figure everything out. We have these tremendous limitations. As beneficial as wisdom is, it doesn't answer all our questions. There are things that only God knows. There's secret things that God doesn't reveal to us. One of the most comforting verses in the Bible to me, when I embrace this verse, I'm about to read it to you in a second, when I live in the good of this verse, when this verse is alive in my soul, I can do verse 15. I can eat, I can drink, I can work with joy. And those are the moments my face is, I keep forgetting what he says, shining, that I have joy on my face. It's these moments, it's when I can embrace that God doesn't tell us everything, and that's okay. Deuteronomy 29, 29, here it is. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of his, all the words of his law. So God has revealed to us the words of his law and his gospel, his word here. He's revealed to us everything we need in the scripture. But he hasn't revealed to us everything. I mean, this Bible, you can't turn to chapter and verse that say, 
Give me a clear answer of why I'm not healed of this chronic disease. You can't turn to a chapter and verse that says, give me a clear answer why that godly person died very young. Give me a clear answer, Lord, why you continue to allow this wicked person in power that is harming so many people or this wicked person in business or whatever, this evil person that is harming so many, why do you let them live on and on and on perpetuating evil? Why don't you cut them down in their evil? You can't find a verse that says, here's why God acted this way here and here's why he acted that way there. There is mystery and we have to get comfortable with mystery. And when I feel free, when I'm not tempted to pry into God's secrets, to try to look behind the curtain, if you're trying to look behind the curtain at the secret things that God has, you will be anxious and worried and fearful. Your life will be a stressful mess because you will not know those things. I believe that in heaven, in the new heaven, new earth, we will see some of those things, but we'll never be God. There will always be some secret things that God doesn't give us full revelation on. And so when I can say, hey, I've got all I need right here, so let me put my head down and Live wisely, obey scripture by the grace of God, meditate in the gospel, meditate in the grace of God to change my heart and to see him, and trust him. Leave the results with him. When I do that, I can enjoy some tacos and a beverage and my job and all the stuff that he says to enjoy. He says to do that. Tacos is loose. He actually says eat, but that's a loose interpretation because it's getting close to lunch and that's what was on my mind. We've got to have the category of mystery. And immediately he gives us some mysteries, doesn't he? Look what he says in verse 10. I saw this, the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is vanity. God, doesn't, don't you say that the righteous will be honored? But what happens here? This is someone who's wicked. They go into the city. They do wicked things in the city. People are harmed. God is blasphemed, and then they have a funeral, and everybody shows up at the funeral, and this person is lauded and honored like, wow, like they were a saint of God. Look, you know, I thought honor came from righteousness, and the wicked are being honored. God, how's that? How does that work? And then verse 11, he says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed, the heart of evil, a heart of evil, a heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. So, I see delayed justice, God, or um, injustice altogether. So somebody does something wrong, and rather than be held accountable or judged or punished, they're let go. And you know what happens? Everybody else looks and goes, hey, I can get by with that too. And then the children of the heart of the children of man, they want to do evil. And if you go and do a hundred times evil, he says, the sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. So these are those questions that, Lord, okay, I get wisdom. I get how you generally work. I love that. But God, I'm struggling with how the exceptions along the line, how they all work out. And so this person, there's no justice. This person keeps pursuing evil, and you prolong their life. But look what he says next. Yet, I know that it will be well with those who fear the God, fear God because they fear him. Verse 13, it will not be well with, with the wicked. Okay, so there's all these things that don't make sense, wicked people honored, wicked people living on and on, but I know that ultimately it's going to be well. I know the people that fear you are going to be well, and those who don't fear you are going to suffer. Okay, so there's that. And then we're going to go back here. It's a sandwich. It's like, okay, injustice, 
but I know you're going to do the right thing, Lord, and then we're going to go immediately to injustice again. Verse 14, there's a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the, their deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. So I look around and I see people doing the right thing, and they should be blessed, but what happens to them is exactly what should happen to the wicked. They, they suffer, they punished, they, they're punished, they, they have a bad time, whatever it is. And then I see people doing wicked things, and they're treated like the righteous. They're rewarded, they're honored, they're blessed with long life and material gain, and it looks like good relationships, and you know? So how does that all work out? So it doesn't make sense, but I know it's going to work out in the end. doesn't make sense. How do we eat that sandwich of truth? Because it, the meat doesn't go with the bread, if you know what I mean. They don't balance out. The only way that I know that you can read those things together and say wicked people are being treated right, wicked people are being honored, Righteous people are treated wrong, but I know those who fear the Lord, it's going to be well. The only reason I know, that you, the only way I know that you work that together is that you extend your timeline and say, here's the reality. Ultimately, if you fear the Lord, it will go well for you. It may not tomorrow. It may not a year from now. It may not in this lifetime. But in eternity, it will go more than well for those who trust Jesus Christ. That's the assurance. You may skate by and think you're getting by with everything right now, living a sinful life, and it's going great. There's no accountability. Why should I believe there's a God? He's blessing me in my sin. But there's coming a day when it will not go well for you. Now, I know the text doesn't say what I'm saying. I'm, I'm jumping to a conclusion, but here's why I'm jumping to this conclusion, because this is the theme of the whole book. The whole book, if you were here the first week, we looked at the last two verses of the book and said, this is the theme. Look at the last two verses of the book. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of God. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You may see the unrighteous prosper today, but God will bring every deed into judgment. You may see the righteous suffer and die young, be martyred for their faith maybe, but God will bring every deed into judgment. God will sort the answer to the, the parts of that sandwich, the outside, the answer to that is eternity. Do, do you reap what you sow? Yes, that is a true statement that's in the Bible. But there's not an expiration date on that statement. You may not reap what you sow in this life, but you will reap what you sow, ultimately, because God is just and God is fair. So should we be encouraged by this? Well, chapter 7, we read last week, chapter 7, verse 20, says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So my cadence was building up. God's going to sort it out. But God's going to sort us out, and none of us are righteous. So this leaves us in a really challenging place, doesn't it? How can we stand before God if we're not righteous? How will it go well for us? Well, the answer is God sent Jesus to live the life we couldn't live, a life of righteousness and a life we were unwilling to live, and he died in our place as our substitute. If you're new to Christianity, I want you to know 
that it's not karma in Christianity. Everybody just, you do right and you get blessed. That's not it because nobody does right. But this is the amazing thing. This is not in any other religion. And if you were to write your own religion, come up with your own religion, you could not come up with something this amazing. God is holy and makes the rules, creates us and says, you must live a holy life, a perfect life, honoring me in your heart, soul, with all your choices, loving me and loving your neighbors yourself. We break those rules. We cannot do that. So we fail. So what does God do? God sends his own son. God becomes man. He becomes one of us and comes and lives that perfect life, always honoring his father, Jesus does. And he dies, takes our place, takes all of our sins upon himself on the cross, dies in our place, is judged for our sin. So that if we believe in him, our sins are forgiven and we receive eternal life. So it's not karma. Here's what it is. Here's how reaping and sowing works with the gospel. You reap, you the sinner, reap what Jesus sows. Jesus plants, sowing means planted. Jesus plants a life of righteousness, and the harvest of that is yours. You're treated as righteous because you have faith in Jesus. And Jesus reaps what you sow. Jesus had no business being on a cross because he never committed a sin. He was perfect. Why is the perfect son of God on a cross? Because he is reaping what we sowed. All our anger, all our pride, all our greed, all our lust, all our complacency, all our hard-heartedness, all our self-centeredness. Jesus is dying for those sins. He is reaping what we sowed so that we can reap what he sowed. You could not come up with a truth more amazing than that. It means that to be right with God and to have eternal life, what I must do is repent, which means turn from my sin and believe in Jesus and receive the gift of what he accomplished on my behalf. So that when I stand before God, there are two ways to stand before God. He will, he will unveil everything, he will reveal all sins, and he will judge them. And we will either pay for our own sins, or if we believed in Jesus in this life, if we trusted him, we followed Christ, he's our Lord, if that happened, then God will count all of our sins as already judged on Jesus. So when you believe in Jesus, your judgment day for eternity, moves from the future to the past. Your judgment day happened when Jesus was on the cross. When you believe in him, you are in Christ. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. And you're free before God today. If you resist Christ, then you've got judgment to come where you will be, all of us, you will be what you deserve. You'll be condemned. The only way outside of condemnation is through Christ. So when we look at all the craziness in this world, we must Fear the Lord, knowing that he will sort it all out. We embrace wisdom. We love it. We love God's word. But here's what we do. When he makes those kinds of proverbial statements that this is how it goes, we say, great, I want to be diligent as a worker. Unto you, Lord, and I'll trust you with the portion about riches. That last part, I'm going to trust you with how that works out. It's in your hands. And we ultimately fear him, the Lord God, who is over all. It's once we get that gospel wisdom we reap what he sowed that we can really live out verse 15, which is, I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil all the days of his life that God has given him. So the only way to live that life with the shining face, the only way to live that way 
is to live in the good of the gospel, that I'm not responsible for all that happens in the world. I can entrust God to be God. I'm not God. And I am right with God because of what Christ has done for me. And when Ecclesiastes says, if you fear the Lord, you trust him, you know him, it will go well for you. I'm not guaranteed that in this moment, but oh, for all eternity. I am guaranteed that it will go more than well. It will go better than any of us can imagine living life forever in the presence of God and his people. So we can wake up tomorrow and cast our cares on him. In the meantime, we can leave in just a moment. We can leave and go into our day and enjoy the Lord's day. Go get those tacos. Get your friends. If conscience, if conscience allows, crack open a cerveza or a water or whatever it is and be with your friend. Go to work tomorrow with joy in your heart, knowing that he is Lord, his gospel is true, and he is with me. The battle belongs to the Lord, as we sang, and that is forever true. Let's stand together. We're going to receive communion. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org. 